The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I've entitled the message this morning, Killing Yeshua. I guess, uh, who's, uh, I can't think of his name, O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly's got a book called Killing Jesus. Bob texted me yesterday and said, good thing you didn't use Jesus. Are you good at, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd be sued for uh, <clears throat> copyright infringement or something, you know. But uh, we uh, have just finished looking at the trials of Yeshua. We've talked about many times. There have been two of them. There was a religious trial before the elite leaders of Israel, and there was one before the Romans. Now, Pilate said three times that he finds no fault in Yeshua, that he was innocent. But because of the pressure that the Jews put on him, he couldn't let Yeshua go. He was afraid. He was afraid for his career. And so he turned him over to be crucified. Now, Pilate didn't know it, but he was fulfilling the will of Yahweh. And I think more than anything in this story that John gives us, he wants us to understand that the crucifixion of Christ was part of the sovereign plan of God. You all realize that, right? Yeshua himself had announced his approaching passion and crucifixion at the end of the, his very last day, his very last time he taught in the temple before he left to go into the upper room with his disciples and do the upper room discourse, the last thing he taught in John 12, he said, And Yeshua answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this signaled a change in this gospel. Up until this point, there's been a repeated theme in this gospel that Yeshua's hour had not yet come. He first mentioned his hour when he was talking to his mother at the wedding in Cana. And John in 2.4 says, My hour has not yet come. But at the conclusion of his three years of ministry, his mission was coming to a climax. And in 13.1 he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Yeshua, Yeshua knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Yeshua's hour of glorification and His return to the Father's right hand was approaching. This hour was determined by God the Father before the beginning of creation. And it was about to be fulfilled. In our text, it is being fulfilled. He is being glorified. And we talked in the Gospel earlier about the fact that the glorification, when He was lifted up on the cross, that's part of the glorification. Now, in our last study, we saw the chief priests of Israel saying, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Do you understand the blasphemy of that statement? These Jewish leaders shouted out that they had no king and by inference, No God except the Roman Emperor Tiberius Caesar 
who was acknowledged as the Son of God by the Roman people. Their statement, we have no king but Caesar, is a major breach of the covenant. God was their king. They're turning from Yahweh to Rome. Now, God had left Israel, He had left Jerusalem a long time ago, back in Ezekiel 10. The glory departed. So these people have been you know, working on empty for a long time now, but now it's just reaching a climax and, and they are you know, just basically saying Caesar's our king. The Jewish hierarchy had accused Yeshua of blaspheming. And now they're doing the very same things themselves. We have no king but Caesar. John said earlier, he came unto his own and his own received him not. He came to the Jewish people as He promised He would, promised all through the Tanakh, and they rejected Him, and this is the final rejection. It says, so He delivered Him over to them to be crucified. Now, as His custom is, John doesn't repeat much of the information that's found in the Synoptic Gospels. And He doesn't do it with the crucifixion or death either. He gives a lot of new material here that's not found there. He says, so He delivered them over to them to be crucified. Now, by now, Pilate had given up any idea of justice, okay? His only desire was to pacify the crowd that suddenly had become so fired up, and if it meant the life of an innocent man, he just felt like that's out of my hands. Now, by the words to them, John evidently meant that Pilate handed Yeshua over to the Roman soldiers to satisfy the demands of the Jews. The word delivered here is the Greek word paradidomai. And it means to turn over to judgment. So let me ask you here, who handed Christ over to judgment? Okay. The text here is talking about Pilate. Alright? But Pilate does this because it's the preordained plan of God. This is not man ex, you know, exercising authority over God, but God, the Son, giving Himself into the hands of sinful men to carry out the eternal counsels of the Godhead. It was God the Father who was handing the Son over to judgment. We see this in Romans 8.32. Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son, that's the Father, but gave Him a paradidomai, same Greek word. God the Father delivered the Son over for judgment. Pilate's a player in this. God is using him, but behind it all is the sovereign hand of God. Pilate's simply the human instrument. God is the divine cause. We have to always view the passion and crucifixion of our Lord as being under the sovereign control of of Yahweh. God is in control of everything. Now remember what day it is. It's Passover. And it was the time at which the Passover lambs were to be slain. And so here we have the chief priests of Jerusalem on the one hand, and Pilate, the perfect of Rome, on the other. And they're uniting, and they're delivering up the Passover lamb. So here we come to the fulfillment of all the teaching of the Tanakh concerning the Passover. As Paul will say, 
Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And so Rome and Jerusalem unite in offering up God's Passover lamb, which is slain for the sins of his elect. Now in this text, John omits any reference to the most brutal and sometimes lethal form of scourging. That would normally happen at this time. He doesn't talk about it. The crucifixion process would typically begin by scourging. Now, we saw back in verse 1 of 19 that Pilate took Yeshua and flogged him. Remember that? Remember I said this was not the most brutal form of scourging that would take place? Remember why I said Pilate did this? at this? He was innocent at this point. He hadn't been convicted of anything. You don't have an innocent man disciplined. So why did he do this? He was hoping it would be enough to satisfy the Jews so he could let him go. Pilate knew he was innocent. So he flogs him and says, okay, look at this. Does this look like a king? You know, look at this poor man. We just let him go now. It didn't fly. But that's why he did it. He did it to release him. It wasn't the most brutal form. Well, now after being sentenced to be crucified, Yeshua would receive a second beating. This time the more severe one. I want to read you a brief description of the scourging that our Lord endured from the book entitled The Crucifixion of Jesus, The Passion of Christ from a Medical Point of View. It says this, The heavy whip is brought down with full force again across Jesus' back, shoulders, and legs. At first the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue... They cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissue, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Again, remember, Rome had no limit to the scourging. They could beat him as long as they wanted until the guy who was beating was just exhausted. Usually it would be more than one person. And the whip they're using, you know, is leather straps with bone or metal in the thing, so it literally pulls, cuts down and pulls things off. He says, finally, the skin on the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. Now, this brutal beating was prophesied a thousand years before Christ in Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance. This is why I don't like visualizations of the cross. Have you ever seen a cross where the person on it didn't look like human? They were so, you know, you usually see, you know, Christ on there and he looks like, you know, some American guy, you know, with long hair. He's got a trickle of blood going down his forehead, and he's hanging there. No, that's not the picture at all, people. He was brutalized before he ever made it. A lot of people never survived the scourging. They died. After they were forced to go under the scourging, then they had to carry their own cross to the place of the crucifixion. And like I said, some people didn't even make it, so it's quite after you deal with that, now you've got to take this cross and go to the place of crucifixion. Verse 17 says, And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
All right, he went out bearing his own cross. Now, let's talk for a minute about the cross. Despite what some may tell you, we're not certain of what this thing even looked like. Okay, we're really not. Now, I know that's hard to believe because we got crosses everywhere. We know what it looked like, right? Had little diamonds all over it, made of silver. No, nothing like that, okay? One opinion is that it was a plain stake. Literally a tree most times, okay? And this is the view that the complete Jewish Bible holds to because they say carrying the stake himself. And you get that from that. They don't use the word cross because they don't believe it was a cross. And that would resemble something like this. This is a tree, and they would just take them, and they would nail them to the tree, hands and feet, and it would be, you know, in that form. So that's, that's one option. Another opinion is that the cross was in the form of a figure X like this. This is called St. Andrew's cross. Another suggests that it was in the shape of a T like this. This is known as St. Anthony's cross. And the fourth, the so-called Latin cross, is the one we're most familiar with. It looks like a T. It's shaped like this. And the predominant view today is that the Latin cross is the most likely shape. That doesn't really mean anything to me. I'm not convinced of that. I, I don't know you know, what it was, and the shape of it really doesn't matter, okay? Um, and a lot of argue this cross here as opposed to this cross is because the placard, you can see the placard on that cross, the board on top, that was a placard that says this is what this man's guilty of, this is what he's being killed for, and people say, so it had to be this kind. Well, don't you think you could put a plaque right there and it would still show up just fine? Yeah, because he hung down below it, all right? So, I don't know, there's not a lot of good arguments there. Again, he was put on a cross. It's an instrument of torture. We're not exactly sure what kind of cross it was. But typically, they say the cross consisted of two parts. All right, The cross beam, a horizontal member on which the arms would be stretched out and attached, and the vertical post. And despite all the scenes you've seen of Yeshua carrying this whole cross, they didn't take the whole cross. All right, The upright would already be in the ground at the crucifixion site. All right, They carried the cross member. Have you seen the pictures of the cross? I mean, you got a wood that's probably that size. It's like an 8x8. Eight eight. Any of you ever picked up an 8x8? Eight eight? Even an 8-foot piece of 8x8? Eight eight? You know how heavy that is? Can you imagine carrying this whole thing? No, no, it's not happening, okay? They're carrying the cross member, which itself is hard enough to carry. Well, they carry that to the execution site. Now, the Greek word for cross here, storos, originally meant an upright pointed stake or pail. Later the word storos came to refer to any part of the cross, whether the upright or the cross piece. Now, literally the Greek here reads, he was carrying the cross himself. And it was normal that the condemned man, in the middle of a square of four soldiers, so they'd have four Roman soldiers around this guy, and he would carry the cross piece on which he was to be crucified to the place of the execution. Now, the accusation against him was written on a board, and it was carried ahead of the soldier. I mean, ahead of the person being crucified by a soldier. And they would take the longest route possible to get to the crucifixion site for the point of demonstrating this to everyone who they could. They want as many people to see this as possible because it was a warning. And what they're saying is, behold the power of Rome. Don't violate. Don't go against Romans' laws. This is what happens. Now, the church fathers 
tend to see in this, and, and I think there's something here. They, they see the antitype to Isaac carrying the wood to the place of his supposed sacrifice in Genesis 22.6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. So here we have the wood laid on Isaac, his son. And so some church fathers say this is a type of the Lord Yeshua. And even some Jewish scholars thought that the Isaac episode was reminiscent of the cross. Uh, Genesis Rabbah 56.3 says, Isaac carried the wood like one carries his stake on a shoulder. And so they pictured it like the cross. And you got to see in this picture of Isaac carrying the wood you know, to his own execution place. He's got it on his back. He's carrying the wood. This is a picture of Christ. But what's really cool here, another picture of Christ appears once they get to the site of sacrifice. They find a ram caught in a thicket. So he's got a crown. This ram has a crown of thorns on his head. His head's caught in a thicket. Another picture of Christ in this scene. All right, so Yeshua begins to carry or drag this cross beam from the Roman praetorium where he had just been flogged along the Via Dolorosa to his execution site outside the walls. Now, at a certain spot as they walked along, it became obvious to the execution squad that Yeshua wasn't strong enough to carry this cross any further. Did he collapse? I mean, did he just fall down and was lying there with this on him? The Bible really doesn't tell us that he fell or it was necessary for someone else to carry it. But we can appreciate the fact that as a true man, he was a man, he no longer had enough strength to carry this heavy wooden beam at least as fast as they wanted him to. It's already mid-morning and they have to get this done before sundown, so they're kind of in a hurry. So they grab Simon to take up the burden of Christ. And Mark tells us that in Mark 15, 20. John doesn't mention Simon. And there's a lot of arguments about why. I don't know that we have to even get into that. You know, that the other Gospels did, and that's why he didn't. You know, okay, he's not telling everything everybody else told. He's telling his story. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes. Mark's the only one who tells us that. They put his own clothes back on him and led him out to crucify him And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexandria and Rufus, to carry his cross. So Simon's at the wrong place at the wrong time. And they grab him and compel him to carry the cross. Now Mark says he was compelled. This is the Greek word, angaruo. It's used three times in the scripture and it means coercion. The government authorities coerced him to do something he didn't want to do. Imagine a government doing that, okay? (laughs) Now, did Simon have to comply? Well, he did, because Roman soldiers had the legal right to make anyone carry something for a distance of one Roman mile. Now, Roman mile was 80 yards shorter than our mile. So, you didn't have to go a whole mile, okay? A Roman mile. But you had to do that. And listen, that's why Christ said in Matthew 5.41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, that's the law, go with him two miles. What's he saying? If those government officials make you do something, 
You take up arms and you fight them. No. He said, if they make you go a mile, guess what? Go too. Show them that Christianity is not about force. It's about the power of love. It's about the power of God. He said, you go with them two miles. So that's what that's all about. He spoke this during his sermon on loving your enemies, which Rome was definitely enemies of the Jews. All right? He talked about turning the other cheek in this. So he says, if they compel you to go a mile, go too. Now, the road that Christ walked carrying the cross from the fortress Antonia to Golgotha is traditionally called the Via Dolorosa. You've heard of that, right? Okay. Via Dolorosa is Latin for way of grief or way of suffering. Most of us are probably familiar with the term, at least I know I am, because of the Sandy Patty song, Via Dolorosa. Are you familiar? Any of you familiar with that? That song has been in my head all week long. I mean, it's just, it just, you know, it, it just. Here's a couple of verses from the Via Della Rosa. He was bleeding from a beating. There were stripes upon his back. And he wore a crown of thorns upon his head. He bore with every step the scorn of those who cried out for his death. Down the Via Della Rosa called the way of suffering. Like a lamb came the Messiah, Christ the King. But he chose to walk that road out of his love for you and me down the Via Della Rosa all the way to Calvary. It means way of suffering because this is the road the Lord walked from his beating to Calvary. This is the road. This is the way. Now, the modern Via Della Rosa in Jerusalem was created in the 14th century by Franciscan monks. And if you go to Jerusalem now, they'll take you down the Via Della Rosa and they'll show you the 14 points of the cross along the way. The modern tradition with its 14 stations is pretty much unbiblical, mostly. And I say mostly because there's two stations there that are actually biblical, two stations that the Bible talked about actually happened on that traditional journey of Christ. They have added so much crazy stuff. Some lady, Veronica... Veronica gave him a handkerchief, which he wiped his face with, and then when she got her handkerchief back, it had a face of Jesus on the cloth. Amazing. You know, they just people just make this stuff up. The place of the skull, Aramaic is called Golgotha, same place, all right? Um, this identification of Golgotha is found in Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 19, the Greek word skull is cranion. Sound familiar? Cranium, cranion. And Calvary comes to us from the Latin word that means skull. In the Reims New Testament translation of the Latin Vulgate translates this place of the skull. All right, so place of the skull, Golgotha, they both mean the same thing. It's just that's what they're trying to say. This is the place of the skull. Now, Matthew 27, 32 and Mark 15, 21 explicitly state that this place lies outside the city. And that's important. John says it's near the city when he gets to verse 20. At the time of Yeshua's crucifixion, Golgotha was located outside the walls of the city. Now, I say at the time because they've expanded the walls greatly now, and now it's inside the city walls. But it was forbidden to contaminate the sanctuary of the holy city by the presence of the dead. And therefore, no one could be buried or executed inside the city walls. 
It was considered to be the camp of God, Leviticus 24. But again, as I said, it was not the camp of God anymore because if you go back to Ezekiel 10, the glory departed. God was done with these people, all right? And they're going to suffer the wrath shortly because of that. It's called Golgotha. Let's talk for a minute about Golgotha. Was it on a hill? Well, of course it was because the hymn, the old rugged cross, says, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, right? And isn't that where we get our theology? From hymns? I'll tell you, people, I believe most people get more theology from hymns and songs than they do from the Bible. Because they're more familiar with hymns and songs than they are from the Bible, okay? And though it says that, you know, and we hear that a lot of times about it on a hill, tradition in both hymns and paintings depicted crucifixion being on a hill, that would go very contrary to the belief at the time. Romans and Jews. Romans put temples. Romans put homes, they put places of honor on top of hills. Not condemn people. Hills, mountains are where God lives, okay? And there is no mention in the Gospel of Yeshua being crucified on a hill, okay? I don't know how, you know, it ended up in the hymns, and I don't know how tradition, and I don't know how a lot of things ended up being the way they are, but it wasn't on a hill, okay? There's a lot of disagreement today about the site of Golgotha. Where is this exact site? I don't think God really wants us to know. I don't think it's that important. Like I said, Scripture indicates it's outside the city walls, but it was close to it. It was definitely along some public thoroughfare because the Romans wanted this as visible as possible. All right, I don't know if you can make this out. It kind of looked like a skull. Uh, this photo was taken in the 19th century. Now, just so you know, that's a little bit after the time of Christ. <laughs> so this, you know, this thing has changed over the years. But a lot of people refer to this cliff face uh, they say the rock protrusion, the indentations, they give it a distinct appearance of a skull. All right? So if Yeshua was crucified here, his cross would have been at the bottom of this cliff. On the ground, this would have been in the background. And that's maybe where they got the place of the skull. The Romans crucified people on major roads, not on hard-to-reach hilltops, because they wanted, they wanted the crucifixion as close up to the people as they could get it. On your road, they want you to just that be in your face, all right? Because again, they're saying this is the power of Rome. You mess with Rome, this is what happens to you. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Yeshua between them. It's important to note here the crucifixion was not how the Jews executed people. All right, that's important. Jewish scholar Alfred Edersheim says that there was a place in Jerusalem that was a place of execution. It's where they executed people. The Jews used it to execute people. He says it was an 11-foot deep precipice. The first witness against somebody who'd been determined to be guilty pushed the person over the edge. See, you're accusing somebody of something? You're involved in the execution. Okay? The first person gets to push him over. If he lived from the fall down on the rocks below, the next witness would come up with a big rock and drop it down. You think of stoning, they're not picking up them little rocks out of your garden and throwing them at somebody. All right, the person is in a lower level, they're taking big stones and they're trying to kill them with one. So they'd be trying to hit them in the head to kill them. 
If that didn't work, then other people would pick up rocks and start throwing them down to kill them. All right? That's how they did it. Well, Yeshua made it clear that that's not how he was going to die. Okay? He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Yeshua talked about his death as being lifted up in John 8, 12, 12, 32. The Jews didn't lift somebody up, they lowered them. And this is why the Jews had to get the Romans to do it for them. They couldn't do it themselves because Yeshua had to be crucified. It was prophesied. This is the way he was going to die. There they crucified him. Now, notice here that the New Testament writers They don't dwell on the physical sufferings of the scourging or of the cross because that's not their focal point. We tend to make it that, but it certainly wasn't the focal point of the gospel writers. I want you to focus here on John's reference to this. Look what John says. He says, they crucified him. That's one word in the Greek. That's it. None of the gospel writers go into any detail about the crucifixion. Why do you think that is? I think one of the reasons is anybody in that time period was very familiar with crucifixion. It wasn't something you needed to explain. It was before their face all the time. People knew it all too well. They knew the horrors of it. They knew the implications. But we, on the other hand, don't. And so I want to read you a medical description of the suffering of the cross, again from the book, The Crucifixion of Jesus, The Passion of Christ, from a medical point of view. This is, from a medical point of view, what happens on a cross when somebody is crucified. He says, Simon is ordered to place the cross beam on the ground because Simon finished carrying it for the Lord after the Lord dropped it or he wasn't moving fast enough. And Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. Just the cross piece now. The ligonier feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives the heavy square, wrought iron nail through the wrist deep into the wood. The crucifixion nail went here. It didn't go here. If it went here, it'd pull out, okay? It goes here. You know, those bones are there, all right? It's not going anywhere, okay? But see, at that time, they considered this part of the hand, whereas we think of hand, oh, that's only the top part. No, that's where the nails went, all right? He says, quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but allow some flexation and movement. The cross beam is then lifted in a place at the top of the vertical beam. The left foot is pressed back against the right foot with both feet extended, toes down. A nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down because of the weight, you know, you're, you're here, you're going to start sliding down. The weight on the nails and the wrists excruciating, the fiery pain, he says, shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward with his feet to avoid stretching the tormenting on the wrist, he places full weight on the nails through the feet. Again, there's a searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs 
but cannot be exhaled. So the person on the cross would have to fight to push themselves up. And normally, on the cross, they put a block of wood either you know, underneath them, on the feet or whatever, so he'd have something to push against, and you think, oh, that's nice. No, they did that so it would prolong it. Okay? They want him to know if he, if he can't get back up, he can't breathe, he's going to die quicker. So they did that to prolong it. It was the most excruciating form that they could come up with. He says, <clears throat> he raised himself in order to even get one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself up to, to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain at tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Remember, his back is just raw and he's sliding up and down on that. He says, then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The body of Jesus is now in extremis, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissue. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. So, that's what crucifixion was about. Again, they made it to be a severe, torturous time. A healthy man could live for several days on such a cross, they said, before he died either of hunger, thirst, exhaustion, madness. It was a slow, it was an agonizing death. I read one account where they said one man lasted nine days on the cross. And this is why if the soldiers wanted to speed up the process, they broke their legs. Because when they broke their legs, they couldn't push up anymore to breathe, and they would asphyxiate and die sooner. As you can see, Calvary was meant to be cruel. It was meant to be an excruciating death. You know that the term excruciating finds its roots in the Latin word meaning out of the cross. Crucifixion and excruciation became synonyms during that era. Cloner, the Jewish writer, writing of crucifixion, says, Crucifixion is the most terrible and cruel death which man has ever devised for taking vengeance on his fellow man. Cicero, a Roman author, said about crucifixion, Even the mere word cross, now get this people, the word cross must remain far not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts their eyes, their ears. In other words, Cicero said a Roman citizen shouldn't even mention the cross, shouldn't talk about the cross, shouldn't mention that word. Elsewhere, he conveys his opinion that crucifixion was the grossest, cruelest, most hideous manner of execution. One of the privileges of being a citizen of Rome is that they were exempted from crucifixion unless the emperor himself said they could be crucified. It was reserved for the lowest. Tacitus said it was a torture only fit for slaves. Now this torturous execution was viewed by the Jews as a cursed form of death. Deuteronomy 21-23 states, anyone who's hung on a pole is under the curse of God. Now what's interesting 
is the documents discovered at Qumran reveal that many Jews in Yeshua's time applied this text in Deuteronomy 21-23 to Roman crucifixion. They believed that that's what it was talking about. Crucifixion was to be hung on a tree. That was to be a curse of God because it was such a horrible death. Now, how did they come up with this? Well, crucifixion, as far as we can tell, originated in Persia. And its origin came from the fact that the earth was considered to be sacred to their God. And so the criminal was lifted up so that he wouldn't defile the earth, which was God's property. He's not on the earth. He's lifted up. He's being tortured from there, dying from there. From Persia, crucifixion passed to Carthage in North Africa. And it was then from Carthage that Rome learned it, and Rome perfected it, okay? Although Romans kept it exclusively for rebels, runaway slaves, and the lowest people, the lowest form of criminals. The cross is an instrument of death. It's an instrument of torture. We could liken it to any instrument of death throughout the centuries, whether it be the heavy axe of the executioner, the hangman's noose, the guillotine, the gas chamber, the electric chair. They all speak of one thing, death by execution. But in our culture, it's become a form of jewelry, a religious symbol. What would you think if you saw somebody, they had a little necklace with a hangman's noose on it? Or someone was wearing a little chain and they had an electric chair dangling from it? Or a guillotine? Think, boy, there's something wrong with them. The cross was an instrument of torture. Torture. And yet today you've got hundreds of thousands of people wearing crosses with gold and silver and jewels on them, beautifully decorated, precious stones, all this thing. And the people who wear them, blissfully for the most part, ignorant about the symbol of what the cross means at all. They don't have the slightest understanding of this. This was an instrument of torture. Cicero says, you don't even mention it. We celebrate it. And that's why you're not going to see any crosses around here. All right? It's a symbol of execution. There's no jewels in that cross that executed our Lord. And I think our culture has lost its understanding of the cross. It's become dumbed down by our jewelry. What does the cross mean to you? Do you understand the reasons for the cross and its necessity for your salvation? The cross is metonymy for the death of Christ. Do you understand that? When the Bible talks about the cross, it uses that for metonymy, meaning the death of Christ. It's like the blood of Christ. When it talks about the blood of Christ, it's using that as metonymy for the death. The whole death, all that is involved, that's what the cross speaks of. That's what the blood speaks of. It is only in the cross of Yeshua that sinners can find refuge from the judgment of God. There's no other way for salvation. You can't be saved by religious observance. This is how most people today believe salvation comes by religious observance. You've got to do this, this, this. It doesn't come by moral living. People who think that's their way, they're really dumb because they're not doing it, you know. It's not by professions, it's not by penance, it's not by baptism. The only way for the salvation of sinners is by Yeshua bearing His cross to Calvary and dying for them. 
all of our guilt before God as sinners was transferred to Yeshua so that He might bear God's judgment for us. Just as the high priest of Israel would lay his hands on the lamb to transfer the guilt from the people to the lamb before it was sacrificed as an atonement for sin, even so Yeshua received the transfer of our guilt as He atoned for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, He, speaking of God, He made Him Christ to be sin who knew no sin. He had no sin of His own. He had done nothing wrong. He took on Himself our sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself, Christ, bore our sins. Again, not His own. He had none. In His body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. And the healed there is not physical healing. It's healing in the sense of you right with God again. Please notice, He bore our sins. This is substitution. He died for us. In God the Father's eyes, as Yeshua became our substitute, He was smitten of God and afflicted so that Isaiah could prophesy concerning Him. Surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This Isaiah 53 so talks about the crucifixion, the suffering servant, but the Jews... See this as referring to the Jews themselves. They're the suffering ones. All we like sheep have gone astray. I think we know that, right? We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on Christ, him, the iniquity of us all. We went astray. He paid the price. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. That was God's will. Why? Because God loved us. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. People, once our iniquity had fallen upon Yeshua, the justice of God demanded that he bear the full weight of divine judgment against sinners. The language of the whole Bible in regard to sacrifice, and particularly in regard to Christ's death, is that it was substitutionary. It was for somebody else, not for Him. The animals that were offered sacrificially upon the altar in ancient Israel's temple had no sin of their own. They were substitutes that pointed to the only sufficient substitute, Yeshua. It was necessary for a sacrifice to bear the judgment of God's justice So that God could be just in giving life to the sinner. Paul put it this way. Very important text on this. Romans 3, 24 through 26. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Yeshua. By his grace as a gift. Now, the word gift here is the, re, the word dorion, which means for nothing, gratuitously gift-wise. The word grace is the Greek word keros. It means unmerited favor or kindness shown to one who is utterly undeserving. So the phrase, as a gift by His grace, the idea of free is redoubled to show that justification is all of God. You play no part in this. If you play a part, if you think you play a part, you're saying, Christ, I appreciate, and this is a Roman Catholic view, I appreciate what you did for me, Christ. I know it wasn't quite enough, so I have to add to it my merits. It's a slap in the face to Calvary saying it just wasn't enough. All you went through, it wasn't enough. I have to add my own part to it. It's ridiculous, people. The word redemption here, apolutrosis. It means a releasing affected by payment of a ransom. Man, I love this word. It means I'm free because somebody else paid the price. I'm not getting into heaven by a back door, people. Okay? It's not like God said, you know, I know they messed up, but let's just forget it. No! The price was paid. When I get to heaven, I'll deserve to be there. Do you understand that? You'll deserve to be there because the price was paid. The payment's been made. In redemption, someone's release or deliverance is accomplished at the cost of a ransom payment. And then he says, propitiation. As a propitiation, this is another awesome word. If you understand propitiation, you understand the gospel. Without it, you don't have a gospel. The Greek word here is hilasterion. And it means the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. See, God's no longer angry at you. There's no longer wrath to you. Why? Because a sacrifice has been made for you that removed His wrath. Amen. It's the turning of God's wrath away from the sinner because a sacrifice has been paid. To be righteous, for God to be righteous and declare as righteous guilty sinners... That doesn't sound right, does it? How can God be just and justify ungodly people? He can't. But God is righteous and just when He forgives the unrighteous because He has paid for their sin in His own Son. So He's just because He demands you sin, you die. That's justice. God is just. And He's the justifier of them who believe in Christ. Oh, man. The gospel is an incredible thing only designed by God, people, and why you ever want to add anything to this is so foolish. The word propitiation in verse 25 is so important. Christ bore the wrath of God. He turned away all wrath from us. Your past sins are forgiven. Your present sins have been paid for. Your future sins have already been paid for on Calvary. The amazing message of the Gospel of Yeshua is that it was my sins and your sins that brought Him to the cross. And there, the justice of God was settled against you 
for eternity. And people, we cannot add one ounce of energy to our salvation. We can't make any contributions to the redemption through the efforts of our hands. And so many people today are striving for God's approval through their human works. It'll never happen. The full measure of God's demand for justice was met in Yeshua at the cross. Apart from His substitutionary work on the cross, we need to face the full wrath of God towards sinners. That's it. It's either Christ paid it or we pay it. Our only hope before a just God whose character of justice would be the same if He had never created men or angels is the righteousness of Yeshua. See, when Yeshua was crucified, a double transaction of righteousness occurred through His substitute. The righteous judgment of God was satisfied through the bloody death of Christ. Now all the guilt that you have before God was washed away in His death. But God's demand for judgment was met in the person of His Son. But you still need to be clothed in the righteousness to stand before God. You can't meet Him clothed in your own feeble efforts of righteousness. So Yeshua has become the end of the law for righteousness' sake to all who believe, Romans 10.4. His righteousness has been imputed to those who are in Christ. And that's why I've said over and over, people, I'm as righteous as Christ. If you can't say that, something's wrong. Because that's the only righteousness God accepts. So if you think you have some kind of self-righteousness, you'll never make it. But I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When I get to heaven, I deserve to be there. I can walk boldly into heaven because I'm righteous. Because of Christ. He obeyed the law on my behalf. People say, you got to keep this law to be righteous. I'm like, I did. Freaks people out. I did. What? I kept all the law. What are you talking about? In Christ, I have been perfectly obedient to the law of God. Because I'm in Christ. That's how God sees me. If, you don't, if you're not seen in Christ, you're in trouble, okay? You're in trouble. We stand in Christ. No wonder Paul could write, and because of Him, Christ, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God. Because of what God did. Because of His plan. Because of Him, you're in Christ. It's not anything you do. Who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Remember that word redemption? It's forgiven, people. Because of the cross of Christ, our lives can have hope, people. It's not about striving. Because of the cross of Christ, we can experience forgiveness. Complete and total. Those most people never understand this. and They're always burdened down on the guilt of their sin. Because of the cross of Christ, our lives can have real meaning. If you have low self-esteem, all you have to do is realize God loved you so much He put His Son to death. That should lift your esteem beyond anything that's imaginable. How important am I that God died for me? In the cross, there's healing. In the cross, there's deliverance. In the cross, there's power. What does the cross mean to you? And let me ask you this. How does your gratitude for what Christ has done for you impact your daily living? How's it fleshed out in your life? You know, there is so much theology 
So much that daily touches our lives in these three little words, which is only one word in the Greek, they crucified him. That's the gospel, people. That's the gospel. It's all about what God has done for us. Religion is what you do for God. Christianity is what God has done for you. Huge difference, people. Huge difference. All right, I'd like to quit here, but I've got to finish this first. All right? And with him, two others, one on either side, and Yeshua between them. Matthew and Mark call these two men robbers. Luke calls them criminals. Okay, they just weren't nice people, all right? Luke goes into the whole story about these criminals. Matthew and Mark both tell us that at the beginning they mocked Christ, they ridiculed him. All the gospel stressed that Yeshua was in the middle between two robbers. It identified him as one of them, and the reason for this, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Okay? Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgression. Isaiah, writing a thousand years before Christ, paints the picture of the death of Messiah and he says he was numbered with the transgressors. There he is with these robbers, with these insurrectionists, with these murders. He's there with them. Listen, people, fulfilled prophecy is one of the strongest proofs that this book was written by God. There's over three hundred prophecies fulfilled in the life of Christ. Yahweh designed fulfilled prophecy to be an open demonstration of the divine origin of scriptures. That's not an accident, people. It, you know, the chances are astronomical of that's happening, of just, you know, a couple prophecies coming to pass. They crucified him. Thank God. Thank God, people. <laughs> That was for us. This brutal, horrible death He did because He loves us. This is what put Christ on the cross. God's love for us. And Paul says in Romans, but God shows His love for us. And then He had a really warm feeling about us. No. How did God show His love? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the demonstration of His love. As a Christian, you should never, ever question God's love for you. All you have to do is look to Calvary. I don't know how He could more demonstrate His love than butcher His own Son on our behalf. And listen, He died for us, and you know what He wants for us, from us? He wants us to live for Him. He created us to be image bearers. That means... When we go out into the world, we bear the image of God. People look at us, they see God. People hear us talk, they hear God. People watch us do things, they see God. That's what that image bearing is all about. We represent the living God as we go through life. And listen, people, the motivation for this is not fear. The motivation for this is gratitude. When you understand the cross, and you understand the complete ramifications of redemption and propitiation, you just want to pour your life out in gratitude to God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, we can't begin to really understand the depths of the gospel, Lord. 
and your incredible love for us that butchered your own son on our behalf. But Lord, I understand enough to know that you did it all, that Christ paid it all, and I stand completely forgiven, completely righteous in your sight. It's hard to wrap my head around that, Lord, because I don't act it all too often. Father, I pray that our lives would be poured out in, a, in a, just an expression of gratitude because we understand what you've done for us. Father, may we never take it lightly. The incredible work you performed on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Christ that freed me from sin's debt. Amen.